Good afternoon, colleagues. Once dubbed as the crown prince of global bond markets, he served on President Obama's Global Development Council. He was named among top 100 global thinkers by Foreign Policy magazine. He is an Arab American of the year, a father, an author of award-winning books and an academic. And yes, I also should mention here that he spent 15 years at the IMF in Washington, D.C. before moving to the private sector. And of course, the list with recognition is endless. Good afternoon, Mohammed. I'm absolutely thrilled and honored to have you with us today. Good afternoon, Jürgen, and, and thank you for that very kind um, introduction. It is this end that is thrilled and honored to be with you and colleagues at the EBRD. You're too kind. Thank you. So let's start, Mohammed. Um, a portfolio career and an impressive track record. What have been the key determining factors of your success? What, what, what does it take? What was the role of luck? So, so luck played a huge role. And I say this to students who want to map out all their careers. And I tell them that all, all my um, career choices were not planned ahead of time in a big way. I was going to be an academic. My father passed away. Suddenly, my mother had never worked. I had a seven-year-old sister. Um, in the old days, and very few of you will know that, the only people who hired and paid PhD economists were the international organization. That's how I ended up at the IMF. I spent 15 amazing years and loved it. And then I decided maybe I should try the private sector. And I took a two-year leave, went to the private sector, fell in love with that. Um, you know, and it's been a series of very lucky breaks um, that have occurred. And I just consider myself incredibly um, open to new ideas. And I tell people, just be open to new ideas. There's a lot of learning to be done out there. Um, our previous speaker, uh, Mohammed Nubar Afeyan of Moderna, uh, an Armenian-American tracing his roots to Lebanon, attributes his success also to his immigrant mindset. Has it played out in your story as well, Mohammed? So I think what has helped me, um, and, and you'll hear a lot about this, and I'm sure your resident representatives with kids will, will agree, is that when you move around a lot as a kid, you can adapt more quickly to new environments. My father was a law professor, then he was drafted into the diplomatic service in Egypt. And we moved around a lot. And I was changing schools and friends and languages and curriculums every two to three years. And the big disadvantage of that is you don't feel you have roots anywhere. And the big advantage of that is you feel you can adapt pretty quickly to new environments. So rather than the immigrant role, what has, what, what has helped me turning a weakness into a strength um, is the ability to simply adapt to new environments. You, you, you mentioned uh, Egypt, um, as you probably know, one of our largest countries uh, of operation. Um, on a personal side, I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners know that you were born to Egyptian parents um, in New York, but shortly after your birth, the family moved back to Egypt. Do you still have, uh, you moved around, you just mentioned that, do you still have connections to the country extended 
family perhaps, or uh, perhaps as differently, how Egyptian do you still feel? So I feel Egyptian as I feel American. Um, I also, my mother was French as I feel French, um, but, but Egyptian is probably something that goes back longer. While I was born in New York, I went back, as you said, as, as, as a baby. And my first 10 years were in Egypt. That's the only time I've lived in Egypt, my first 10 years. But, you know, I'm still interested in the football team there. I still love the food. And I'm particularly interested in the people. Um, I think there's something very special about the kindness um, of Egyptians. Um, and that's something. So, so it is when I, go, when I go back, and I haven't gone back since COVID, but when I do go back, I do feel immediately like it's familiar um and it's it's wonderful i have to say uh, i've visited egypt now also a few times uh, since i'm at ebrd and it is wonderful uh indeed and and you feel the special warmth of the people uh but but from a professional uh side mohammed what is the number one issue egypt should focus on today for instance um for socio-economic development and growth unleashing the potential of its people. I mean, I cannot stress enough. Um, there's a story, if I may share, Jürgen, it goes back a, lo a long time ago. Um, I was at the airport in Egypt, waiting for an Egypt Air flight from Cairo to New York. The flight was five hours late. We had never been informed why it was late. We had never been informed, actually given any information at all, and finally, we got on the plane in the middle of the night and I sat next to an American businessman who was furious. You could feel how angry he was. He did not say a word to me at all during the trip until we landed. And those of you who, who have flown Egypt there, you know they pride themselves on the perfect landing. So we didn't even feel the tires hitting the runway. And the person next to me who hadn't said a word to me and was had a very negative energy um, around him for understandable reasons um, said to me, typical Egypt. And I looked at it and said, I'm sorry. He said, typical Egypt. I said, what do you mean? He said, leave the plane to the pilot and you get one of the best landings in the world. Put the pilot in an Egyptian context and we're five hours late and no one knows why we're late. <laughs> And, and that story decades ago sort of captures a little bit the, 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 the tragedy of Egypt, which is having a relatively educated population that can excel when allowed to do so, or importantly, when enabled to do so, but has not been enabled to do so enough over time. And now it's becoming a real problem, as you know, because youth unemployment um, has massive economic, social, institutional, political implications. And it's becoming more and more urgent to get this right. Just, just enable people to do what they can do well. Yeah. If I may continue with another personal question, Mohammed, uh, you said that the reason you left the top job uh, at PIMCO was that, the, and now I quote, the need to be a good father was greater than the desire to be a good investor. Is it true your daughter presented you with a 22-point list of the milestones you had missed? Um, yes, and, and let me just say in the beginning that when I shared this story, 
I do it recognizing that I am incredibly privileged, that I had the ability to make these decisions, and that most people don't have the ability to make this decision. So I, I don't in any way underestimate how difficult this decision is. But yes, there, you know, I, I'm, I pride myself to have an incredibly independent um, young daughter. And my older daughter is also incredibly independent. And, and, and Anna and I pride ourselves on that. But I remember she was 10 years old and I told her to go brush her teeth. And she didn't. And I said this several times and she didn't. And then I said, okay, Samia, what's going on? We more than, I'm more than your dad. You know, we're friends. What's going on? She went to her room, came back with a folder here, opened the folder and said, do you know that in this school year, it was May, in this school year, since September, you have missed 22 of my events. And I immediately said, no, I haven't. And she started reading off the dates. September so-and-so, my first day of school, you weren't there. September so-and-so, my first soccer football game, you weren't there. October so-and-so, parent-teacher, you weren't there. And I started saying, yes, yes, I remember. I had to go to Japan then. Yes, yes, I remember I had to do this. And then said that, I want to show you something else. And then she brought back the treasure of American schools, which is the yearbook, the, the thing that captures. And she opened it on her year. And that was a picture of me. It was some sort of um, um, arts event that I've actually turned up to. And there's a picture of the arts. And in the background, I'm sitting on a, on a little, little stool. And I thought, this is great. Here's proof that I actually attended something. And she said, Dad, look what you're doing. And I looked and I had my Blackberry in my hand. And she said, Dad, even when you're here, you're not here. And that for me was as if someone had poured a bucket of ice water on me. Um, I'm a relatively old parent. I'm not young. And I realized that these were days that I'll never make up. So the next day I went to see my partner at PIMCO, the founder, and said, in the next year, and you decide when, it can be tomorrow, it can be 12 months, whatever works for the company, I'm going to step down. He said, why? I told him the story. He said, I don't believe you. Okay, there's another reason, isn't it? You're going to work for a competitor. And it, it was hard to convince people that I had made that choice of re trying to regain control of my timetable. I mean, Jürgen, you know that when you are near the top of an organization, you don't control your schedule. Everybody else controls your schedule. Go meet clients, go do this, go sort out this, right? And this notion that we control our schedule is actually absolutely wrong. We don't. We, we, we actually responding. And most of the time you're responding to things you have to do. Um, so, so, you know, I did step down and I look back on it. It wasn't an easy decision. A lot of people think I'm crazy even today. A lot of people still think I'm crazy having done that. But I am so happy because of the relationship that I now have with my daughter. And as everybody knows, as they get older, they have less and less time for you. But but, but then does this mean there's an automatic work-life trade-off for high-powered roles or uh, perhaps, again, as differently? Is work-life balance possible for CEOs of large publicly traded firms or banks or actually also for leaders of privately owned companies for that matter? Today, it is more possible. I remember, and this is the irony of how inconsistent I was. I remember one of our top women performer coming in and telling me that she was going to resign. And I asked her why. And she said, I just 
can't manage this anymore. I can't go 100%. And I say, why don't you go 70%? Why don't you go 60%? And she said, I didn't know that was possible. And I said, I'd rather you go 60% because the value that we'll get from you going 60% is more than the value we'll get from a new, brand new person going 100%. But at the time, this notion that you could have flexibility was, was, was new. I mean, we're talking about 10 years ago. And when it came to me, it never occurred to me. Now, looking back, a lot of people said, well, you could have done it. But it never occurred to me um, to do it, and I, and 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 you know I take this on myself because in the process, I I set a, a bad example of an either or. I think today the world is more ex accepting, not totally accepting, but is more accepting of um, work-life balance. And I think COVID in particular has pre pressed fast forward on this, and companies are having to make really difficult decisions. And I don't know what you're doing with the EBRD but really difficult decisions as to what to do next. Yeah, no, we, uh, we, we face that same problem indeed, Mohammed. So you believe right now, maybe not 20 years ago, but right now it is possible to build, um, let's call it more inclusive societies with a better quality of life. I absolutely think it's, it's possible. And you would be surprised because I was, when we started talking about this seriously at PIMCO, how many work practices make no sense. I remember flying back with a colleague and we landed at 5 p.m. And the airport was here. Her house was to the south and office was to the north. And, she, and I said, you know, where are you going? And she said, I'm going to the office. And then I'm going to go home. I said, well, that doesn't sound very smart. And she said, FaceTime, I have to be seen. I said, what do you mean you have to see, be seen? Uh, and she said, if I'm not seen, it's, it's as if I'm not serious. I said, well, that's really silly. We're going to add two hours to your commute uh, for no reason. So we started creating these um, safe zones where I would meet with a randomly selected group of people, typically very diverse in terms of what work stream they came from, etc. And, and we would discuss practices at, at PIMCO that didn't make any sense or that reflected some deep implicit bias of some sort or some blind spot or something like that. And Jürgen, we discovered quite a few of these. It was actually quite striking, including, by the way, behaviors on my side. And, you know, I, I was as, as guilty of of silly behaviors as other people were but the fact that people can call me out on it and i can give you examples that i that i share and i shared in a book so that you know people know that it's okay um to make a mistake as long as you fix it and and a company has to be willing to tell unpleasant truths to each other so that we can fix it and i agree with you by the way that COVID actually probably makes it all more or a little easier and more acceptable. Um, equality of opportunity, uh, as you probably know, is a key pillar of EBRD strategy. And already more than 10 years ago, uh, you already spoke about the risk of increasing income inequality, both within and across countries, by the way. And you called it the next big risk. 
inequality of opportunity was further aggravated by the pandemic. We were just talking about it. And uh, of course, we probably all know the statistics. The world's richest 1% have more than twice as much wealth as 6.9 billion people. So what can or should be done about it? Yeah, and the first thing we have to recognize it because it is having massive negative externalities. So even if you happen to be on the positive side of that, and I'll give you two examples. Um, the Omicron variant. You know, when, when vaccination rates in another part of the world are very low, it doesn't matter how high your vaccination rates are. Because at some point, there's the risk that a new variant will have developed elsewhere that evades your vaccine. So this concept of equal opportunity to vaccination is really important. And it's in everybody's interest. I really do believe the notion that no one is safe until everyone is safe. So we're playing it out today. The fact that Africa had less access to vaccines to begin with is now coming back here. Delta was the same, was the same thing from India. Um, another example I, I will give you is when we went virtual in March of 2020 and school went virtual. The LA school district, Los Angeles school district, the second largest in the US, lost touch with 30% of their students. Now, why did that happen? Some had no Wi-Fi, some had no computers. The school itself wasn't able to transition really quickly, let alone provide Wi-Fi and computers as others did. Some were not interested. The result of that is that today the school has the school system has only reclaimed partial contact with some of them. Now, what happens to these people? They become unemployed. They probably become long-term unemployed. They become unemployable and they're lost generation. And that in itself causes all sorts of problems, not just for them, the foregone opportunities, but also for society. And I really worry that COVID has accelerated the inequality of opportunity as well as the inequality of income and wealth. And ultimately, when people feel alienated and marginalized, it's because of opportunity. That's what marginalizes people. There's a sense that no matter how hard I work, I will not have these opportunities. And that becomes a societal problem. So I, I think EBRD stressing opportunity, and it starts with the education system, it starts with mentoring, it starts with retraining, it starts with all sorts of, uh, of element at the, you know, the funnel, as we call it, the top of the funnel, to make sure that the funnel starts being more open in the bottom as well. And, and uh, going back then to the income uh, inequality, is, is tax, taxing the rich also part of the answer? Or perhaps I should say, or closing some of the loopholes the rich have? Uh, and if so, why has it not happened uh, today? Yeah, I mean, you know, the example out there is carried interest. You know, it is ridiculous that carried interest is treated preferentially. There is no valid argument other than certain people insist that this be the case. And it shows you the politics of it. Um, and if you look at the tax system, it tends to be littered with things like this. So tax reform 
is often key. In a lot of countries you operate in, um, you know, it's it's an absolutely prerequisite to other elements of, of development. You know, as you know, I think, you know, there's first generation structural reforms and second generation structural reforms. Uh, most countries can do the first generation structural reforms and then stumble when it comes to the second generation structural reforms. And then if they don't do the second generation structural reforms, they end up going backwards on the first generation structural reforms. So, so it is absolutely critical that, that we carry this through because the distortion introduced by, by vested interests are really problematic. And, and you would be more than happy to pay higher, uh, higher taxes, inheritance tax, and, and, and so forth. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, I often joke because uh, uh, our, our I have very complicated taxes, not because I have complicated investments, but because the nature of a partnership is that you get um, income from from various places, from different states, and I'm taxed in different states in the U.S. And as you know, it's different different treatment. And you know, my my tax advisor every single year comes up with, you should do this, you should get this exemption, you should get this allowance. I say no, no, pure vanilla, absolutely pure vanilla. Um, and you know, I, our family feels really strongly that we are very lucky to live in the environment we live in. And we're very lucky to, to have benefited from um, wonderful, wonderful jobs. So we, we have no problem whether it's taxes or philanthropy, um, giving it back. Now you, you just talked about the importance of uh, accessibility of education opportunities. Um, and I think somewhere you mentioned elite universities must be open to blind minds, irrespective of social background and uh, to use the US the zip code. You are now the president of Queen's College at Cambridge, one of these, uh, let's call it elite university. Is this currently on your agenda? Oh, it's more than my, it's the reason why I'm here. Um, I, went, I went through a transformational experience coming here. Absolutely transformational. Um, I was allowed to come here because of a scholarship and it transformed my life. And when I came to, to where I am now, I said, I, I wouldn't do, now that my daughter is herself at university in the US, you know, I wouldn't do a more full-time job unless I felt that there was purpose to it. And I can tell you that when you provide an opportunity at a so-called elite university, I don't like that phrase, but you used it, um, you can transform not just the student's life, but their family's life and future generations. Um, and we, I, you know, I've been spending a ton of time um, helping to create with, with philanthropic support, um, scholarships. Um, if I may share, when I came here, we lost a very bright student who had done extremely well in her undergraduate, came from a very difficult background, wanted to do a postgraduate, but couldn't, but didn't have funding. So we sat with her and said, tell us a little bit more because our focus was all on undergraduates um, and said, well, you have to realize that the pressure I'm under from the family. I said, what do you mean? Because the family says, you're the first one to go to university. Now you've got your degree, go, go earn money. So not only do I face the uncertainty of not being able to fund 
my postgraduate, but also I have the opportunity to cost of not earning money. So we designed a very simple scholarship, which we call the Alexander Cromwell Scholarship. It's called after the first black American who came to Cambridge, who happened to have been at Queens. So we took the name. And what we do is we, we pay the fees, we pay subsistence, et cetera, and then a little bit more on that. And we went to that proposition to a few donors and it, it made such sense that we now have 17 of them, which means 17 people from very difficult backgrounds. And the first three joined us and I got a letter from one of them and it brought tears to my eyes. I don't think we quite realize what opportunity means. If I may, Jürgen, one more and then, and then I'll stop. When COVID hit and people were locked down, we created a COVID fund and I had the typical approach. We should have a list of things we support because otherwise we're going to be abused. And one of my colleagues said, that's a very arrogant statement, Mohammed. I said, tell me more. He said, How could you possibly know what the needs are? I said, you're right, but what, you know, if we open, if we have it open-ended, then there'll be abuse. And he said to me rightly, would you rather have abuse or would you rather deny someone an opportunity? I said, you know what, Professor Dixon, I will go with your approach, although you haven't convinced me. Two days later, I picked up the phone and said, Professor Dixon, you're absolutely right. What changed my mind? The second request we came, we got was for a folding chair and a folding table. The student was stuck at home, shared a bedroom with two brothers, had no surface to work on. Not only that, there was no room for a table or chair. So the request came for a folding table and folding chair. And I said, I called Martin up. I said, Martin, you're absolutely right. It, I would have never occurred to me. Yes, Wi-Fi and computers and, and anti-noise headphones and all that, yes. Um, so, so, you know, th there's a lot that can be done to equal opportunities and it, it gets you into the micro, but that micro is really important. Thank you for sharing that, uh, Mohammed. Um, you've also been on the record, um, or, or as expressing concern about the rise of populism, uh, which you attribute to too many years of low and insufficiently inclusive growth. Tell us more about this. What damage is uh, is being done by this? Or probably more important, how can we repair it? So the background to that is, is coming out of the global financial crisis. Um, to those of us who had worked in developing countries, you know, our mindset is not wired only cyclical. It has a sort of cyclical component, it has a structural and secular component. Um, as you know, the e after all, you know, the ERBRD was founded, um, recognizing that structural change takes years and years, um, and it's not a cyclical world we live in. But if you remember coming out of the global financial crisis, the predominant view was that this was a very deep cyclical shock, that it's a very deep V, and therefore, the policy response should be governed by the three T's. Targeted, everybody agrees with that. Timely, everybody agrees with that. Temporary. Temporary was, you know, very cyclical in its nature. And 
with my colleagues at PIMCO, the more analysis we did, the more we, we realized that, the, that parts of the global economy, in fact, most of Europe, with the exception of Germany and the US, had done almost no pro-growth, pro-productivity structural reforms. Instead, we had fallen in love with finance. And we somehow thought that finance was the next level of capitalism. In fact, we competed with each other to become financial centers. And we lost sight of training, of retooling, of education, of infrastructure, physical, everything else. And when you actually looked, we are coming off a sugar high where access to finance had been facilitated, over-facilitated. And it was clear that we weren't going to bounce back immediately. So we came up with the notion of the new normal, that if we're not careful, this will be a period of surprisingly low growth, growing inequality. Um, and I remember how easily that concept was dismissed in the beginning. Then within two to three years, it, you know, Christine Lagarde called it the new mediocre. And then Larry Summers re reinvigorated the notion of secular stagnation. All those are structural, structural. Now, when you get hit by a structural element, those who are on the negative side of it start getting marginalized. And the more they get marginalized, the more they get alienated. The more they get alienated, the more they become one-issue voters in democracy. And the one-issue voter typically tends to be Brexit. We gain control. That's so appealing. The Tea Party in, in the United States, President Trump, you know, what was it? Um, clean the swamp or, or like, drain the swamp, right? So you become, you suddenly have a population that's very prone to one topic, one issue. And what behavioral finance, behavioral scientists will tell you, and I'm a, I'm a great believer in the insight of behavioral science, is that we as humans rush in to dismantle what we don't like without thinking of what will replace it. And most of the time, you cannot replace something with nothing. Um, look at what happened in Egypt in 2011 in terms of, of you know, the revolution. Yeah, you know, everybody got up, incredibly thing, Arab Spring. You want the regime down, but you had nothing to transition to. Brexit, we're still making up what we're transitioning to, but the decision was already made. We exit one regime. So, so this sort of, of alienation and marginalization has real consequences um, that we have to be careful. And that's why these, the notion of inclusive and sustainable growth is so powerful. Always have someone in the room saying, yes, we, we are going to grow, but are we going to grow inclusively? Are we going to grow sustainably? And, and, and that, that, that very que two questions cause people to change at the margin and hopefully much more than at the margin. But, but the Denmark question to you, Mohammed, is, is maybe it's a little bit too dramatic, but is capitalism failing? And, and can it be saved given its inability to address not only inequality, but also climate change in a, I would say, a satisfactory manner? So market-based systems for me are by far the best way to allocate resources, the best way to create incentives, the best way to have a price mechanism operate. With that comes market failure. The markets cannot price certain things. Um, humans are not robots. 
they also can act, quote, irrationally. And most of the time, the irrational things are not. They're just responding to a distortion somewhere else, including in financial markets. Um, so there will be market failures, just like there will be government failures. And you know, whenever, whenever someone comes to me and says, let's intervene in this way, I say, let's talk about it. Well, but what are we trying to fix? So climate change, you want to fix that. And it is the wrong pricing. It is the, the, the typical, typical um, problem of how do you internalize an externality? Now it gets complicated because there's an issue of fairness here, right? Because not everybody starts with the same initial conditions. Now the marketplace will never be able to fix that. Even with carbon pricing, unless you have a set of taxes and subsidies that come with that, it's the initial conditions are such that the market solution will fail. And I think that, that, that people are starting to realize the same thing about how do you price tail events? You know, we knew about pandemics, but who, who is going to um, insure themselves against a pandemic when there's no certainty? Now, I have a list here, Jürgen, that I kept started keeping from the first month of COVID, what I call the silver linings. And we've, we've learned a lot. It is the first time in my life that I'm really excited about public-private partnerships because vaccines, the vaccine development was such a powerful public-private partnership, understanding that there's different risk tranches and who can absorb which, which tranche and how do you both provide insurance against catastrophic risk but also let the private sector do what the private sector can do. What we've seen in terms of collaboration of scientists around the world, absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. The sharing of information. So, so uh, you know, I'm hopeful that if we learn from these events, we can make capitalism or the market system work a lot better, but it will require some government intervention because you will get market failures. Yeah, I, I by the way, I very much agree with you. Um, we have to, of course, also talk about monetary policies, about inflation, and you repeatedly said that um, the Fed is underestimating inflation risk. Um, and I think these are your words, uh, the US economic recovery accelerates price increases uh, for, for everything from energy and food to consumer items. You did not express your support to renominate Fed Chair uh, Powell. In fact, on Fox News Sunday, you said, and now I quote, it's time for a change in policy at the Fed. And you believe this change in policy may be easier with someone who hasn't repeated over and over again that inflation is uh, transitory. And this is probably also a good time to bring in some related questions uh, from the audience, uh, as I uh, have already received uh, quite a few. And you see me, you will see me looking at my phone a little bit more. Uh, soon, but the first uh, one is from Tarek El Sherbini, a regional head in our agribusiness team. And Tarek's question: You have argued persistently that the Fed is risking grave policy mistakes by delaying action to tighten monetary policy to control rising inflation. At the same time, you acknowledge that supply chain disruption uh, disruptions and labor shortages 
are the two major causes of acceleration, uh, accelerating cost push inflation. In addition, it's a long question, decisions of increasing interest rates, especially at the fast rate, can have their own risk on economic stability, as we've seen in 2008. So taking all these factors into consideration, what do you think is the right balance that the Fed needs to strike to manage inflation without tightening too fast and too hard? What steps would you take? And if I may, actually, because we have another related question to that uh, from Umit Abdulayev, uh, one of our principal economists, and Umit uh, writes, changes in the nature of monetary policy making in major, and he adds, Western central banks during the past decade, that to a proliferation of the low interest rate environment in the financial markets. This has likely improved lending conditions for emerging markets, sovereigns, corporates, and uh, SOEs. Do you think that the low interest rate environment is here to stay? Of course, with the occasional deviations, please. So the, the, these are excellent, excellent question. Um, and they speak to the characterization of inflation. They speak to um, what the policy response should be and they speak to what are the unintended consequences of the policy response and they're all absolutely key um, the characterization of inflation if you go back to march april when we started sensing inflation and everybody said it was transitory and it was transitory for two reasons base effects which would wash out by july and two very temporary mismatching of supply and demand I said at the time, those two factors are absolutely valid. But let's keep an open mind as to whether there isn't something else in play. We've just had a major shock. The global economy is not one that is easily put to a sudden stop and then starts again. And now there's a lot more emphasis on not just efficiency in supply chains, but resilience. So let's keep an open mind. And I remember saying over and over again, I don't know what the answer is, but I know that some humility is needed. Now, what we've seen happen since then is camp transitory, as it has become called, has extended the definition of transitory. It went from a few months to a few quarters. Today, I heard it goes to three years. Now, what is transitory? The economic concept of transitory is that it's viewed by people as temporary and quickly reversible. So you look through, remember that phrase, you look through the shock. You do not change behaviors. That is what transitory means. It is not a time concept. It is associated with time, but it is a behavioral concept that people do not change behaviors. What has become very clear to me is that people are changing behaviors. I can give you example after example after example, companies who now feel that preemptive price increases are the right thing to do. And because demand is so strong, they will stick. Wage earners who feel more confident, DIA is an example, 6%, they went on strike, they got more than 10%. Amazon having to increase its, its minimum wage to $18. What do you think that does to everybody else? Um, you know, so we're seeing behaviors change. 
So for me, transitory is not transitory anymore because we're seeing behaviors change. Now, what is driving that behavior? Expectations. So which leads me to the second part of the question is, well, if the Fed can't deal with labor shortages because it cannot increase labor force participation, if the Fed cannot deal with supply chains, why should it raise rates? Or in my case, what I've argued for, why should it stop QE quicker? So, so let me take an example, and this is the, the extreme example. Up to three weeks ago, the Fed was still buying 120 billion of securities every single month. Among that 120, which has gone down slightly, was 30 billion of mortgage securities. I don't know a single person who doesn't complain that the housing market is red hot. I don't know a single person who doesn't worry about people being priced out of the housing market. Why should the Fed be supporting the housing market to the tune of $30 billion a month? It makes absolutely no sense. So what we are stuck with is a policy paradigm that made total sense a year ago, but the world is very different from a year and a half ago. So it's as if you were going uphill and you had to press the accelerator all the way down. Now you're going downhill and you still got the accelerator pressed all the way down. So I've been arguing, let's ease our foot off the accelerator. Now, what happens if you don't ease your foot off the accelerator? You're going to have to slam on the brakes later on. And we don't have a single historical example, a single historical example of the Fed being late and not causing a recession. So I worry that by being slow to react now, it's going to react too violently in six months' time. And that will happen consistent with three other contractionary wins to the US economy. The fiscal stimulus is wearing off. By the time we get to next year, between the high spending, again confirmed by numbers, and a 6% plus CPI, the cushion that households have built due to exceptional, exceptional government transfers of 16% of GDP is gonna run down. And third, the marketplace is going to have to exit a very benign liquidity paradigm. And we may have a tightening of financial conditions, as pointed out by the second question. So I'd rather act now than later have, see the Fed increase. Now, if you think I'm crazy, which a lot of people could well think that, listen to Bill Dudley. Bill Dudley was the head of the New York Fed. He's predicting, predicting, I don't go as far as him because I think this will break lots of things, that the Fed will have to go to 4 to 5% interest rates. If it goes there, it's a global recession. So we want to avoid um, that, that outcome. Now, finally, there are externalities for, for emerging economies. Yes, there are negative externalities. That emerging economies have benefited enormously from capital, but understand the nature of that capital. When I used to run the emerging market investment, we made very, this, very big difference between tourist capital, tourist dollars, and resident dollars. Resident dollars are, are 
funds that are attracted by the attributes of the country. Tourist dollars are funds that are pushed into the country by the attributes back home. And it's exactly like a tourist in, in, in you know, in England today, I'm freezing. Um, you know, show me, show me a, a brochure of sun and beach and everything else. I will make a decision to go there based on the conditions at home. I it will never occur to me that I may be going to developing countries where things go wrong once in a while. But the minute something goes wrong, I'm going to go to the airport and I'm going to come straight back. So the concern is that this capital that the emerging economies have benefited from is tourist dollars. And you have to understand that that's the nature of the capital that's been pushed to you. And you have to build resilience. And we're seeing, we're seeing central banks preemptively raise rates um, to try and minimize the exit of tourist dollars. And we saw what happened in March of 2008. We saw what happened in the fourth quarter of, of 2018. We saw what happened in paper tantrum in May, June, 2013. We've seen this movie before and we really would like to change its ending. Yeah, you, you, uh, you were referring to emerging markets. Um, they were viewed as the predominant source of economic disruptions in the past. Uh, you just have to name Latin America, the Asian crisis, uh, uh, Russian default, etc. More recently, however, developing countries have been viewed less as a threat of systemic disruptions and more as a source of global stability. So, 2007 emerging markets showed enormous resilience. Has your view changed since then? No, my view is in general, there's been a lot of learning that has gone on. You know, I, I, I you know, I'm often asked, how did the emerging markets, like you say exactly, navigate a crisis that happened at the core of the system, 2008. And they navigated relatively well, not just avoiding massive defaults, but also coming out in growth much faster than most people expected. Part of it was the support provided by multilateral organizations, including the EPRD. But part of it is they had had their small heart attack before. You know, remember that if you're an emerging economy, you live through the Asian crisis, you live through the Russian default, you live through the Argentinian default, you live through the Brazilian near default in 2002. These were all small heart attacks. So when the big heart attack came, you had changed your diet, you had changed your exercise routine, and you were able to navigate it better. You know, we saw a massive decline in um, currency mismatch debt. In, in also maturity mismatches. We saw a lot of better behavior by, by the developing world. A lot of that behavior, unfortunately, has eroded since 2008. So, so the developing world as a whole today is not as strong as it was in 2008. Um, I know we're slowly but surely running out of time. So we have uh, roughly eight or nine uh, more minutes. So uh, another question. And this one comes from our chief economist, Beata Javorczyk. And that means the questions are not becoming easier. Um, Beata writes, uh, economic power of firms often translates into political power through lobbying. And you just already uh, gave a few examples, uh, the Amazons of this world. And she argues that the existence of superstar firms can undermine competition and stifle innovation. So her question is, do we need international antitrust policies? 
She is absolutely right, and I've written on this. We have seen a significant increase in, um, con in firm concentration. It has gotten even worse during and in the aftermath of COVID. Um, and yes, we, we absolutely need this. Um, we need it even at the national level. Even at the national level, um, um, it, it sort of ha has been forgotten um, what firm concentration can do. She, she's absolutely right. And another colleague wants to know about your time at the IMF. Um, you spent some time uh, there, 15 years, I think, as I mentioned. Uh, but you appear somewhat critical in your, particularly in your book about the institution itself, or at least its governance structure. You call for adjustment, uh, transparent, and merit-based appointments. Can you elaborate on that? And what is the ideal scenario? Is it actually achievable? So they always tell you that when you come towards the end of, of a, of a Q&A, <laughs> someone's going to ask you a question that's going to take you, you know, there's a line in everything we do that separates courage from stupidity. And every once in a while, you're tempted to be pushed over that line from courage to stupidity. Um, so here we go. Look, I cannot look into the eyes of policymakers w where we tell them transparency, meritocracy, and say we have nationality-based criteria for top organizations. I, I can't do it. I simply cannot do it. And the experience has not been a happy one. Right, because it becomes political. It doesn't. It, it it has less to do with the merits of the candidate and more to do with the nationality of the candidate. You know, I I experienced this at the IMF. I was really interested in in that restructuring as a very young economist. I applied for the division that dealt with official restructurings, the Paris Club, and I was told that as an Egyptian, I couldn't work there because I wasn't from a Paris Club member. Okay, it wasn't about, about merit, it wasn't about expertise. Thank God I was told that because I went to work on private restructurings, which, which was a much better investment in, in, in my human capital as it turned out, but I was really disappointed. Now, what sense does that make? I have a PhD like someone else has a PhD. We came to the fund as, as international bureaucrats, as international civil servants. We carry a UN passport. So, so it is very difficult to argue that that nationality criteria should still dominate. I, I, you know, I just find it very hard um, to do to do this. So, yes, I have been critical of the governance system because what tends to happen, and it's happening, is people opt out. They create new institutions with different governance systems. They create little pipes around the IMF, bilateral payments agreements, all sorts of things. They start going into regionalism and create something, something else. And if we're not careful, these absolutely essential multilateral institutions, the IMF and the World Bank in particular, will become more fragmented. So, so Jürgen, you know, I, you know, I, I feel that, that we need to eat our own cooking. We can't go around the world telling people about transparency and meritocracy, et cetera. And, and when it comes to the most important assignment, say, no, we're different. We will retain some feudal order that, that, that what made sense may be coming out of the World War II, but does it really make sense today? 
I, uh, I see many thumbs up and applause somewhere here left on my screen. Um, so there must be quite a few of us uh, agreeing with you. One looking at the time, one last question. Um, let me see which one I will take. Um, yeah, perhaps an interesting question on fintech. Uh, your backing of payoff, the uh, the peer-to-peer -peer lender in 2014, was uh, received with let's call it enthusiasm and um, by some as a vote of confidence in fintech. What is your view today, and what are the lessons learned? And uh, maybe I can add to that: Will the traditional banking model be completely disrupted? by uh, technology will fintech eat the world so, so for those who don't know it payoff which i supported um was a very simple proposition that poor people should not be charged 25 percent on a credit card now it makes total sense economically a bank cannot distinguish between a good credit or a bad credit etc moral hazard da, 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 adverse selection the, the whole thing okay but it turned out that they had a proposition which is by focusing on that group, they can lower, and they did lower um, the, the interest rate charge to 10 to 12%. And it was just a different business model, and it has worked. Um, I think FinTech is a very powerful um, initiative that people haven't taken seriously enough. And I'm not talking about Bitcoin becoming a global currency. As you know, Jürgen, I don't believe Bitcoin will become a global currency. But I do talk about more efficient ways for payments, transfers um, that have a very big social element to them. Um, you know, I don't need to tell you that if you are using Western Union to trans to as as a as a as a worker outside to to for your remittances back home, um, you're losing a lot of money unnecessarily um, in that. So, so I think, and I know that uh, this is the last question, but, but I think that, that the technology that's driving some of the FinTech is really powerful. At the same time, I think the FinTech industry risks repeating the mistake of big tech. And what is the mistake of big tech is that they are so singularly focused on changing the world, they don't, they don't realize that they have systemic implications. They don't realize that they have to step back and work with the regulators to ensure that genuine issues about illicit payments, fraud, instability of platforms are things that have to be taken seriously. Big tech made the mistake of, of not doing that. And the consequences, as we know, are still we lived with them today. Um, and I'm hoping that the fintech industry will not repeat that mistake. Dear Mohammed, given the number of questions I still have, but I also have received, we probably could have continued for another few hours, but I'm afraid our time is up indeed. Um, I was told that what matters is brilliant answers rather than brilliant questions. And I have to say, we've heard a lot of brilliant answers today. So Mohammed, thank you so much for this very frank, open, and I would say very enlightening conversation. And I hope to see you soon again at the EBRD in Egypt or elsewhere. Thank you so much. Let me just thank you because I think that there tends to be a close correlation between answers and questions. But also, <laughs> let me thank all colleagues at the EBRD. I, I know it's not easy um, be, being the work, sometimes the work that you do, you know, um, you have you have sort of pressures from all sides, but thank you for what you do. It's really, really important. And just the ability 
to share best practices among countries is an incredibly powerful tool for everybody's benefit. So thank you for what you do. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Bye-bye.